Manx Radio Podcasts, powered by Shaw. Hello and welcome to the Women Today podcast. A look back at some of our favourite moments from the past four days as it was a bank holiday on Monday. And this week we've learned about a new company showing visitors the wonders of the Isle of Man. Jane Hodson was a great, great guest. We've also had a lesson about the island's court system and heard from two women who want to break down gender bias in science. But first, we were joined live in the studio this week by one of the fastest women ever to go around the TT course, Maria Costello, MBE. And her nickname is Elvis. Can you work out why? Yeah, surely you've worked that out. With with my surname being Costello. Oh. So it was when I was, I was about it's... nine, my friend actually nicknamed me uh, Elvis. Oh, and it's, so, it's just stuck? That's what all your friends call you? Not everybody. Close friends, particularly friends from school back in the day. And it is on the back of my helmet and my leathers. So, yeah, it's stuck. Do you like his music? <clears throat> I do. Good. I'm a fan. I'm a big fan. Yeah. Thank goodness for that. <laughs> <laughs> is that one of the uh, tunes you might listen to as you prepare for a race? Actually, it isn't. But um, it could be. It could be Oliver's Army, maybe. That's the one for tonight. <laughs> there you go. Do you actually have a, a sort of a tune that you have to listen to before you start racing? It used to be um, Hotel California by the Eagles, um, but now we we normally have a TT tune. We haven't actually picked one. Maybe could some, somebody could come up with some suggestions, but um, normally something kind of jumps out at me and that becomes my TT song. So we've got lots of different ones that I've been using from throughout the years. Yeah, I've got quite a few. Take me back then, Maria. What do you remember about the first time you ever sat on a bike? So it's 20 years that I've been racing at the Isle of Man this year. So it was a little bit before that, and um, it wasn't really a motorbike, it was a scooter. I had a Honda Melody, and that got me to work. I was training as a veterinary nurse, lived out in the sticks, didn't want to keep bothering my dad to give me lifts, and bought this moped. Very often with people who are in the motorcycling industry, it is a family thing. So was there any connection with it within your family? Absolutely not, no. So I, I quickly moved up to getting a motorbike, and uh, friends of the family, their son had uh, a TZR125. I quite fancied their son. He took me to some motorbike shops. <laughs> Ultimately, I fell in love with uh, a, a, another TZR125. That became my first bike. My mum had to come to the shop to sign the uh, finance document, and she walked out. She thought I was getting another moped. And, um, of course, she's had to deal with a lot of things along the way. So the first time I got a race bike she said you won't go to the Isle of Man place will you and I <laughs> kind of said no and then ended up here and uh, so she's had to put up with a lot you know she gets the phone calls when I've been airlifted to Nobles or whatever and um, but she's totally proud of me now I think the MBE helped we'll talk about that in a moment because that was obviously a, a massive massive uh, point of your career but you know that reaction from friends and family who are understandably really worried about you Maria hurtling round roads that you know I'd struggle to do 60 on I'm going to be honest <laughs> I know I think it's you know it is difficult for anyone to understand who's outside of this world why we do this but I seriously love it I've been doing it 20 years I've, I've you know there's there's more than just going fast it, it, I love it that the people the crack the motorbikes the places where I get to ride motorbikes yeah I, I'm one of the most fortunate women in the world I think and does it matter that you are a woman in this industry does that ever do you think it's ever held you back does it impact on you in a, on a Ooh, day-to-day basis the big question <laughs> <laughs> um 
look, you know, again, I've been doing it 20 years. So really, I would have liked to have seen more women come into the sport. I thought there was going to be a big influx when more women started taking up biking, just generally on the roads. But it, but it is still slow. And has it held me back? No, because nothing's going to hold me back. I think um, being a racer, you're just super determined. And I just wanted to go racing. And maybe some of it has helped because I'm a female in a dominated world. And I use that. Well, you have um, written an autobiography along with Steve Pitts and you did talk about the sex bias of the big race paddock in that, the never-ending battle to be treated as an equal by men you regularly beat on a bike. Is it getting any better? I mean, is just talk us through that. Yeah, oh gosh. Has, is it getting any better? I mean, it's changing for me because I've been around for a long time, so I think I've earned my respect. And um, But in society in general you know I, I don't think there has there's there's been change but just not enough so we are seeing the likes of people like Jenny Tinmouth getting a, a factory ride in BSB that's fantastic you know other women competing in Moto2, Moto3 in, in the world championships and women getting better opportunities but it's still not enough it's still got to change a lot more before we're anywhere near equal but for now we'll we, we can carry on and you know, we're, we're making our ways. I think the, the thing that I'm most passionate about is that women can compete on equal terms with the guys. And um, that's, you know, I'm on the FIM Women in Motorcycling Commission and I'm really keen to kind of hold on to that, what we have there. Would you not say, though, um, from looking at it, that it's not always the men that you struggle with, the natural fact, it's other women around you that are quite determined to not see you do so well? It is, it is... It is strange in a competitive when you're in that competitive world, and obviously, who's gonna you for the guys? Who's gonna be their rival, main rival? Well, it's normally their teammates. So, I guess for women, it, the next main rival is gonna be other women, and maybe I felt a little bit like that years ago. Again, I've been here a long time. Whereas now, I feel like we'd be much more powerful if we work together. I think women can be super powerful working together and that's why I get involved with the European Junior Cup and I, I just want to be there for other women that are competing I might not have all the answers or all the right advice but I, I want to be there and try and help. And when you look at someone like Herrera who's doing incredibly well in MotoGP I mean she's doing fantastic and she's now labelled really as the fastest woman in the world let's yeah. say do you not think fancy a bit of that forget the road racing I want to get on track. <laughs> not for me personally I love road racing this is my home and this is where I'm at and 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 they're a lot younger than me and they're in different places in their careers and but that's yeah that's the ultimate and uh yeah you've got Anna Carrasco there she's you know and it's really tough for them to get rides just just as much as it is for the guys so you know they have to use everything they have to make it happen. Do you think with with us talking about women in racing are there potential sort of downsides to that in that we are actually then separating ourselves from racers in a way? Do you not, would you rather not just be seen as a racer? See, this is the double-edged sword. Yeah. So this is, yeah, do I, do I just get on with it and not shout about the fact that, you know, I'm the first woman doing that, etc., etc. And this is, you know, how, but I want to go racing, so I, I have to use what I've got. And I, I think all the guys would use everything they've got. Mm -hmm. um, it's a dog-eat-dog -dog world out there. and But, yeah, I do want it to get more, you know, hopefully it will go more that way so that we're, we're all just... At, at the end of the day, we all just line up on the grid. And I'm sure myself and all the other women that compete just see themselves as another competitor. 
It's interesting, isn't it? Because I think you referred to the fact that you thought maybe more women would have come forward in this sport. But I wonder how much of it is that women have to make that choice between family and a career in motorcycling and and how much of a role that has to play. Yeah, maybe. Although racing is getting a very becoming a much younger sport. Mark Marquez has sort of marked that by becoming the youngest ever uh, Grand Prix champion and um, it's the same same for the girls really and this is why it's harder for them to get involved in the sport because the numbers are so tiny so there's all those people trying to get those places on those few motorcycles in the big championships and the, the girls there are even fewer in number and they're possibly not coming into it early enough because their parents don't know about it and this is possibly what we need to do is educate more parents uh, into the fact that little girls can ride motorbikes and yeah like is that a scary prospect because or is it a super safe prospect because would you rather your daughter was doing something in a much more safer and controlled environment than going doing something that's possibly more reckless on her own Beth has got a tiny one. That's why she's looking the way she is at the moment. She's actually got a little, 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 little girl. And I'm not sure that she would be so excited about it. Saying, you know what? Mommy, I want to get on a bike. No, she would go on a bike now, that child. <laughs> she just wants to be her brothers and then some. But yeah, oh. no, it's an interesting prospect because I think, you know, you talked about your mum walking out of the shop. And, and I think there is that mentality. I'm sure, Joe, you'd agree from a parent's point of view. If your children turn around and sort of say, this is what I want to do. But like, <laughs> no, just yeah, no. No, I'm having the same thing with my sister. So I have a nephew and um, everything I've bought him has wheels and and I start getting excited and talking about getting him an Osset you know electric trials bike and my sister just stares at me gives me the the stare and I have to go oh no we won't do that yet then there are so <laughs> many kids up in the paddock obviously sons of racers that are actually on the Rossets racing around you know and you can tell it's the mothers that have kind of got the hands over the eyes going oh no it's going to happen and the dad's like yeah yes, it's great but then they're going to have to understand who gets the money spent on them because obviously it's an expensive sport to do this Hugely. Maria isn't it so you know you kind of have to divide where you put your money into if you want your son to start doing it as well yeah James Hillier's little boy and um yeah little little jack um burrows up there they're they're already totally immersed in this world of motorcycling and i can't see them doing anything else well it certainly is a world that you are immersed in we mentioned the mbe um you're awarded that in november 2009 the only female motorcyclist to ever be awarded one i believe so i believe so yeah that was uh totally out of the blue so how did it feel when you got that envelope through the door well I was uh, my post goes to my parents house and my mum was getting she was out getting the shopping I sat there with my dad and I read it I said dad you better read this letter because I think someone's really pulling my leg <laughs> and we thought it was a joke but my it says that you have to you have to accept it you can uh, and you have to send a letter back and dad went well do that anyway just in case it's real and uh, and it also said that you have to keep it a secret and we, we we both looked at each other and dad went, yeah, we better not tell your mum yet because she'll tell everyone. <laughs> and I was literally working in the press office at the TT that year and I got an email from a journalist at The Sun saying, congratulations. And I went, oh, wow, is it real? And um, that's when we knew it was real. And that's when we told mum. <laughs> Did you want to go and receive it in your letters? Well, no, no, <laughs> I wanted to. So I'm not married or anything. So this was going to be a big day out for the family. But I am tight and I wouldn't uh, book a hotel. And uh, I um, 
decided to drive everybody down there first thing in the morning and we got stuck in traffic and we nearly missed the whole thing and I had to dump all my family on the side of the road in the car and I got on uh, a motorbike because my friend works for Virgin Limo Bikes <laughs> he picked me up and got me to the palace thankfully all my family did make it which I suddenly realised was the whole point of the day without having them there it would have been a disaster but um, yeah so they the police I think they let them park basically in the front yard of um, Buckingham Palace I love that that image the the best story that isn't it can you imagine just (laughs) pulling up outside Buckingham Palace on a bike what were you wearing though so I had a little black dress of course of course you did um, which uh, had to sort of straighten out and sort my hair hair out and out the helmet But that's the first question Prince Charles asked me. Did I arrive by motorcycle? To which I could reply, yes, Yes, I I did. (laughs) Um, Again, when we were talking about the reaction that your your friends and family have had to you taking this up as a career, and and you mentioned the phone calls that your mum has had to deal with. Unfortunately, there have been a fair few. (laughs) Um, I just wonder, after some of... I mean, you've had some pretty horrific injuries. How do you build yourself up and, and get back out after that? Again, it's this, it's loving the sport. And also, I mean, life's dangerous. I've been in hospital beds next to people that have tripped over their Labradors and injured themselves worse than than, than I have. Is this and an argument you <laughs> use with your sister? <laughs> yes, mm. and my mum. So, uh, you know, it's just, it's a sport I love and it's driven me to overcome injuries. And thankfully, I've got some amazing people um, around me to help with all of that I've had a lot of physios and um, sports therapists and people that do massage and I've got some great people around me at the moment I do CrossFit at uh, CrossFit East Northampton come and use the CrossFit gym over here and um, all of that's played a big part in extending my career yeah after all those injuries do you know when I first heard about CrossFit I thought you had to be really angry to do it <laughs> exercise when you're angry but anyway <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you know, I just wanted to ask you, Maria, do you get fed up about people talking all the time about the negative side of it? Because, you know, there is a lot of talk about it, isn't it? The dangerous side of it. And do you not just feel that you do want people to encourage to talk about the positive side of it more so? Gosh, if only. Yeah, well, you know, I understand that media, they always want to look for the sensational side of it and pick up on those stories. But it's such a shame. They're missing out on so much good stuff all the time. And, that, you know, motorcycling's been so good to me. You know, the life that uh, it's given me is just incredible. I don't think I would have had that as a veterinary nurse. I've travelled and raced all over the world, Australia, New Zealand, South Africa, America. I wouldn't have done that without motorbikes. What's the ambition then? Uh, to keep racing for a while longer, but maybe run my own team. I definitely want to do more coaching, more training, love doing my women-only track days just see more women go on and and do well in the sport and just be more confident on motorbikes and yeah who knows i tell you the weather has certainly been playing ball this week so far so fingers crossed for the rest of the week um how the first few days of practice been for you yeah really happy so first day out i did five laps in our first session so i'd actually qualified in our first session that's just unheard of so now um we're just working on uh getting the bike handling perfectly and or as perfectly as it can be around the isle of man and yeah really enjoying this weather it's amazing any aches and pains because obviously when you go out and you do five laps straight away and it's kind of you know been a while maybe since you've done that around the tt course do you find the next day that you are aching at all do you know i wasn't too bad and that's where i've got to say thank you to my coach at cfen in northamptonshire because um he's definitely got my fitness 
CrossFit has made the difference. But and also a little shout out to Kath at Rex uh, Physiotherapy for just looking at my shoulder this morning. So I think I have, yeah, I've, I've had a few tugs and pulls on things, but otherwise pretty good. <laughs> Did that sound dodgy? Yeah. Just, <laughs> Shall we just, uh, yeah, yeah Maria. Yeah, I said. literally said that. <laughs> it's okay because you said it, so it's fine. Uh, I think she just saw our faces. Uh, it is 23 minutes past two. Some fairly shocking footage and photographs appeared online yesterday of a young child who was trapped in a zoo enclosure with a large silverback gorilla before the animal, the 17-year-old male and leader of the troop, was shot and killed in front of the boy and onlookers. The incident happened after the four-year-old climbed through a public barrier at Gorilla World in Cincinnati Zoo in Ohio, and this is some audio that was taken from mobile phone footage at the time that the young boy fell into the enclosure. Well, this is Tame Maynard, who is the director of Cincinnati Zoo, explaining exactly what happened. A young boy uh, crawled through a barrier at our outdoor gorilla center and through some bushes and over and fell into the moat. Thank goodness he was not badly hurt going in because he was walking in there and splashing around. But Harambe, our 17-year-old gorilla male, who's a great big animal, 400 pounds, went down and got him, carried him up into the moat, was moving him around, and it, it seemed very much by our professional team, our dangerous animal response team, to be a life-threatening situation. And so the choice was made uh, to put down or shoot Harambe. It's a sad day all the way around. Uh, we have protocols and procedures. We do drills with our dangerous animal response team. But we've never had a situation like this at the Cincinnati Zoo where a dangerous animal needed to be dispatched in an emergency situation. Um, and they made a tough choice and they made the right choice. They saved that little boy's life. It could have been very bad. So the decision was not made lightly. Lowland gorillas are very endangered animals. There aren't very many in captivity. It has, a, it has a, the proper ending. That is the director of Cincinnati Zoo explaining what happened at the weekend. Um, the killing has caused a huge backlash online with animal lovers slamming zoo staff for putting down the primate and the hashtag uh, justice for Harambe is trending on Twitter. Others have demanded that the boy's parents be charged with child endangerment. Uh, so we want to know what you think about this. Were they right to kill the animal? You can uh, let us know. Text 166177 or email studio at manxradio.com. And I know, Christy, when we were talking about this um, this morning, it's really upsetting to even think about isn't it mm -hmm. it is upsetting there's so many elements of it that are upsetting first of all the idea of that tiny child in danger with no one being able to sort of get to the child and obviously the family and onlookers all able to see what's going on but also yeah God, it's always horrendous when an animal that first of all we as human beings have put into an enclosure well outside of its natural habitat anyway is then has to be shot and killed and I, you know I don't envy anyone in this situation I think it's unfortunate that there has been such sort of blame pointed at every area including blame at the parents I think that's I think that's really unfair because it's clearly to me it seems like it's clearly an accident and it sounds like perhaps the zoo if anything should be slightly at fault for having too wide a barrier for kids to be able to get through I think that is certainly a, a really important point of like how did the boy actually climb through yeah. the barrier and um, the mother of the little boy has lashed out at critics she said in a Facebook post that accidents happen uh, some conflict over the, the news reports about this some say the gorilla dragged the four-year-old boy 
like a rag doll for 10 minutes. Um, Joe, what did you make of this? I just, I do think it's incredibly sad. I do also find it, yet again with social media, they are being absolutely, the parents are being victimised on this. And apparently, just reading recently, that they're also getting death threats about it too and being possibly charged on neglect of uh, leaving their children because there was four children. Apparently, they had neglect with one. And I just find it really, really sad that the parents are obviously they're going through a terrible situation themselves and actually have asked for respect for privacy. Um, but, you know, just thinking of the gorilla, I don't know. I don't think it's a shame that the gorilla couldn't have been sedated rather than obviously being just shot dead straight away. But, um, you know, if he was going to attack, they say he would have warned him first um, by literally giving off signs for doing this because they have a, a certain way that they behave if they are going to attack. And apparently he wasn't doing that at the time. But, you know, it, it, again, we live in a very, very judgmental world. And what was right, what was wrong, you know, who can say in a situation? I think what we do know is that the zoo did have a responsibility to keep the public safe. They, mm -hmm. I mean, as we as we heard the director of the zoo saying there, this had never happened before. I guess on the spur of the moment, you have to react in the, in the way that you think is most appropriate. However, they were they are literally just saying um, at the moment on the news that they were um, preparing for an incident like this, and they would basically be given what well, says zoo staff practiced emergency drill for if visitors got inside animal enclosures just days before the toddler got into the cage which is kind of like they should have perhaps been more um, prepared for this if they'd obviously just been in training for it. Well presumably that's they were, they were trying to determine at what point you know a child is in threat enough that they do have to, to kill the animal. Who wants to make that decision? No well you that's know, the thing. Who wants to make that decision? Um, yeah and Beth you were saying as well you know that initially the immediate reaction you want to have is how could they kill the gorilla but then like you were saying if it had been your child. Absolutely I just know? think of my youngest you know climbing in there and I think if you're in that situation you you want anything to happen to keep them safe. Mm -hmm. uh, Miles and Carly, what are your thoughts on this, Miles? It's very tricky, isn't it? They'll have a duty to protect the child, though, the zoo. So it's very... What's the options for the zoo? I mean, if there's a child there, how do you protect the child best? It's very sad. Carly? It's really difficult. Again, I'm, I'm sort of with you, Joe. You know, they must have gone through the protocol or seen whether they could sedate the animal first and things like that. It's a really difficult position to be in, I think. And with, with regards to sedation, we did have some comments actually on our Facebook. We just posted this on just before we came on air. And uh, thanks to Leo, who sent us a link to a page by a lady called Amanda O'Donoghue, who's worked with gorillas as a zookeeper for, for many years. Uh, she says that you have to bear in mind that a 400-pound male in his prime is as strong as roughly 10 adult humans. An adult male silverback has one job to protect his group. Uh, they, are classed as a, they are considered a class one mammal, the most dangerous of all mammals. Uh, keepers themselves don't work in contact with them there's always a barrier between them and the animals as well and she's watched the video over and over again and uh, says that judging by the silverbacks posturing she thinks it was potentially uh, the boy was potentially in danger and she says I keep hearing the gorilla was trying to protect the boy I do not find this is true and also with regards to tranquilizers, they couldn't use them for a few reasons because it would have taken too long for the animal to become immobilized and also Harambe could have reacted in such a way that he may have actually uh, injured the child uh, having been uh, momentarily immobilised by the tranquilizer anyway so it's a really complicated situation. It really is. Rob's just texted to say how does a child even manage to get into an enclosure? Sounds to me as if the zoo didn't have good enough fences and barriers in place which I think is a really good point. Yeah. Women Today brought to you by citywing.com 
for your next flight away. It's 16 minutes to three and our guest in the studio this afternoon is Jane Hodson, who's really followed her dream. She's set up her own business. It's called Guided Tours of Man and it essentially involves showing people the heritage, countryside and beauty spots of the island. And Jane, you, you've gone through quite a lot of training. We referred to this earlier. You went to university, became a blue badge guide to do this. It's a university course, but not actually university. So you do it. Th- we did ours through the Liverpool University and they're just bringing a whole group of um, new guides through I think they've used Chester University. So it's a one-year course where you do 20... twenty. Um, it's two, two modules as such, but each one has 10 sections to it. And then um, you go for another year, you train with the actual existing Blue Badge Guides, you shadow them and um, learn to work the microphones and, and, and sit on the buses. The first time I went out on a bus, I forgot to switch the microphone on. And I was upstairs and the driver was downstairs and she only told me halfway through oh. our trip. So fortunately, there weren't many people <laughs> and they could hear me because I've got quite a big voice. And from then on, then you are um, you can be either become self-employed or you can go out and guide um, with when, when the cruise ships come in. The Guild has that. And I decided that I'd like to do this when I retired. But having not been very well for a couple of years, my whole... Um, the view I had towards what I wanted to do in my future changed. I didn't want to work in an office anymore. I wanted to get out there. And everything just seemed to fall into place. I went to the Department of Tourism to ask them what would it be worthwhile doing it. And they actually put me in, in touch with the Department of Economic Development. And I did a small business course with them. Do you know, we have so many people who started their own business. You come on the show and talk about how valuable the training you get through that course is. It's it's excellent, it really is. You go for three days and, and it's quite intense. You walk home with a headache thinking, oh my goodness, I've got all these things to do. Because you go into small business thinking, well, you know, I'll just, get, I'll just go out there. But there's a lot more to it. There's a lot more to it and they empower you. They actually empower you. And as long as you take everything they tell you on that day and go out and register your business. I wasn't registered. I had the name. I thought that's a jolly nice name. So I realised I had to register it. I had to make sure I had a website and all the things that that are essential, and they were really, really helpful. So you're doing guided tours then. Mm-hmm. Where, oh, and, and how do you decide where you're going to take people? Where are these beauty spots you're talking about? There are, there, well, everywhere on the island, and I, um, I think one of the most important things is to look at the client's needs. I recently spoke to some Americans, and they were from the Laxey area. They had family that had emigrated in 1855 to the States, And so they wanted to see a little bit of where their roots were. And so I took them up to Balarag, where we did some research together. He gave me information. I did a bit of research and we found out the farm area. There were farmers and miners and crofters. And so I thought Laxey was a good starting point for them. And then they wanted an overview. Some people want to just see castles. Some people just want to go and see the coastline. We've... Um, with myself I don't do walking tours but if I get people contacting me regarding walking tours up hill and down dale there are um, qualified guides on the island who do that. What do you do about the weather? I know we talk about an awful lot but if you've got the people that are coming over and you have a week where for instance it's raining quite a lot and you want to get out and side and about do you just carry on anyway? Well the majority of them only want a one-day tour so what what I've you have is a wet weather plan and a, and a dry weather plan so they can actually see more of the island itself on a dry day, but on a wet day, we've got the sites to visit, Manx Heritage sites, especially places like Castle Russian, 
House of Manana and how Old House of Keys, especially for foreign tourists, they think that's an absolutely fantastic place to go. So, what, in your opinion, or who, in your opinion, is the typical tourist at the Isle of Man should be reaching out to? I think we've got different demographics now. The demographic I'm looking at is 50 to 70 year olds because they have the money to travel, they're retiring. Um, they want to, especially um, from different countries or foreign countries, Australians, um, Americans, they've come in um, to have a look at where the roots are. So th- they're very, very interested. Um, other, There are other demographics and they're not interested in going on a guided tour. So for myself, I'm looking at a specific age group. And where would your ideal spot in the Isle of Man be? Where would you always try and get back to if you could? Oh, there's two. I think Mackled and the Sound. Or oh, Niarble. Niarble, Mackled and the Sound. I just think they're breathtaking. Don't That's... you find that, you know, I was out for a walk the other day and happened upon an area of the Isle of Man that I'd never been to before. And this seems to happen on a regular basis. You think you know the Isle of Man and, you know, people will say, oh, it's so small, isn't it? But there's always a place you've not been to, isn't there? You're right, you're right. You can take a left turn and suddenly find somewhere even more beautiful. And, and this is what I try to say to tourists is that we can't see everything. There's all the little roads. And I said, and also there are days where it's very dramatic because of the weather and other days where it's like today, the sun is shining and it's always beautiful, whatever the weather. Oh, do you know what, Jen? This just sounds like the ideal sort of job. You're escorting people on their holidays. You're going to take them on the trams, you take them on the buses if they want to. And it is just like being on holiday every day, hopefully, isn't it? I, I think so. I think so. Where- I, I think they're so interesting as well because they ask you lots of questions and, um, you know, it's great to, to interact with them. Can you have a little Heidi High bing bong thing? Just, I'm just thinking holidays. I'm thinking, no, 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 it was no. an idea. Um, where can people find out more about Guided Tours of Man? I've got a website and I've put some bespoke to, or tours that I've actually set up to give people an idea. I've got Americans coming in off a cruise ship in August and they've actually asked me to give them the North tour, the South tour, the every tour all combined into one. So I've put the tours on there and... I have a blog as well that I try to write a little bit about the island, a present and past, try to link them together. And I'm also on Facebook and I'm on Twitter as well. So my Guided Tours of Man is with a double N. Um, so it's Guided Tours of Man and Facebook and Twitter and on my website. So it's guidedtoursofman.com. Do you know what? One end would have been completely different, wouldn't it? Jane? It would have been. Yes. My daughter um, advised me on that, yes. <laughs> yes. Oh, that's a, another show. Uh, eight minutes. So Subbox Science is a very simple idea. Um, so we're bringing uh, the female scientists out of the labs in the university and then we're bringing them back straight back to the streets and the busy shopping centres uh, on Subboxes to have a chat uh, with the passing audience. And to talk about anything from volcanoes to autism to cancer to brain, anything you can think of. We have 13 events uh, this year in the UK, going from Edinburgh to Newcastle, Manchester, London. Um, So uh, a really good representation and over more than 150 women taking uh, part in this. Fantastic. So if there are 150 women taking part, that must mean there are still plenty of women getting involved in science. Oh, 
absolutely. Women love science. Uh, you know, it's very clear that at school level, girls love science just as much as boys. Um, something goes uh, a little bit wrong just after degree level. So often uh, university courses are well represented with women, but it's taking that next step onto the career ladder of sci- as, as a scientist that is proving more challenging. And beyond that, retaining those women in science such that they can get to the top of the career ladder. So how does soapbox science itself uh, intend to sort of try and challenge that? So what we do is to try to challenge the perception of uh, who a scientist is. So the first year we we ever did this, we had a scientist that uh, had some uh, really red hair. And I can still remember one of the little girls telling us that that one can't be possibly a scientist with all those hair, those red hair. So trying to change how, um, how we think scientists look like and what kind of background they have and what they do and, and not... Uh, challenging those perception in academia and university, but directly talking to the parents of the children that may eventually encourage their daughter and their son to pursue a career in science. I love that, by the way, just so you know, I know it's radio, but I have red hair. So that was brilliant. (laughs) (laughs) This was really red, though. I don't know how red your hair is. is It used to be a lot redder, let's put it that way. (laughs) So what sort of areas are sort of like the favourite areas for women to get into in science? Uh, Well, if you look at the statistics, um, we all know that the life sciences appear to be more popular amongst women than the more physical sciences. Um, And we see that at the undergraduate level with 60% of biology students being female, whereas only about 30% of physics students being female. But then when we get to the uh, professorial level, the numbers are almost equivalently low. So between around about 10% of professors, irrespective of their profession, of of the, the, the science topic, are women. So with regards to getting into those areas, though, I mean, you have to sort of start early, don't you, and sort of encourage the excitement in young children, presumably. That's right. You have to, I mean, you have to uh, demonstrate that science isn't boring, that you don't need to be nerdy and good in math to do science, that science is about also communication, collaboration, seeing things differently. It's about creativity. And so uh, there's no reason to think that someone that has a, a naughty way of seeing life, someone that is very collaborative, extremely good communicator, wouldn't do well in science. So it's about challenging those ideas about what make a good scientist and what kind of people should enter and pursue a career in science. Because we do all still want to know about science, don't we? I mean, the statistics are showing that we want scientists to tell us about their work. Absolutely. I mean, um, recent surveys on attitudes, public attitudes to science shows that the public are really keen to learn more about science. Um, and they are out there wanting to hear about how their taxpayers' money is being spent because most of the UK science is um, funded by the taxpayer. Um, And they have a vested interest in finding out what the latest movements and directions are in science because science is what makes the world around us tick. It's why we have um, a healthcare system. It explains the technology in that amazing phone that you're holding at this very moment. So science is around us all the time. And I would have thought as well that some of these cooler, younger, funkier people on TV now presenting science, aren't they? We've got the Brian Cox, there's also females, we've got Maggie Adair and Pocock, haven't we? So we've got these people out there who presumably are presenting a better image to us. 
Yeah, that's true. I mean, we we are moving slowly, not not enough, uh, to, my, to my opinion, because uh, uh, people will remember more Brian Cox, and there's still more uh, more men presenting science, talking about science, being seen as science uh, effigies. Um, but we are definitely starting to be aware of it, which which is good news. But we still have some progress to do to to uh, inspire girls, in particular, to to see physics and astrophysics and engineering as a, a female uh, career uh, choice option. Excellent. Now, with Soapbox Science, I know that it says here you're going to be transforming public areas all over the country. What are some of your most exciting events you've got? Well, every event is riveting and fun-packed from the beginning to end. We've got 13 events around the UK this summer. Uh, we're spreading our wings as far as Edinburgh, uh, Exeter, Bristol, Manchester, Hull, Cardiff, Swansea, you name it. We're almost probably within a 50 mile radius, you will be able to attend a Soapbox Science event. And we have women from all levels of the career ladder, from PhD students up to uh, pro vice chancellors and professors. And they cover almost every topic and uh, that you could think of and a huge number of topics that you never even realised existed. Some of the props that those women are coming up with are just unbelievable. So, for example, we have a real size cow coming on the London banks. <laughs> I mean, they really, they really show their creativity and ingenuity from from you know enormous gigantic DNAs to to those cows. To uh, some years ago, we had a speaker that made the wall South Bank um, dance the Macarena. So, where can our <laughs> listeners go to find out more about soapbox science then? Yeah, all the information is available on our website at soapboxscience.org. They can also follow us on Twitter at Soapbox Science. And of course, you can look us up on Facebook. Thank you so much for downloading the Women Today podcast. If you want to join us live, we're here every weekday just after two and catch up with what we're talking about on the Women Today Facebook page. We're also on Twitter. It's at MR Women Today. And if there's something you think we should be talking about, do let us know. Women Today at manxradio.com. Just drop us an email. Until next time then, goodbye. Don't sit in the slow lane. Join the fast lane right now with Shaw's all-new Superfast Plus Broadband. Enjoy more bandwidth, amazing speeds and the best value on the island from just £23.95 per month. So don't be left behind. Get a piece of the high-speed action with Superfast Plus Broadband from Shore. For details, visit our stores in Douglas, Ramsey and Port Erin or click shore.com. Love being sure. Terms and conditions apply.